I have to uh, thank Clay for his song selection. That first song that we sang together ties in very nicely uh, with our with our class tonight. I was thinking that the whole time, so I'll, I'll have to have to thank him. Uh, the handout is going around. I just want to make sure everyone can uh, get their hands on one if you would like one. Uh, if you were not here last week, I do have some extras left over, and they're right up here on the, on the front row here on the left-hand side, or I guess you're right down here. Feel free to grab one uh, after the class. There are about 10 of them left, so I know some of you boundless folks weren't, weren't with us last week because of spring break, so I do have some handouts from last time you can get. Tonight, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at the person of Christ, uh, so that'll be, that'll be great. Last week, we established, you'll remember, that nothing is more important than knowing Christ. And we examined a few topics uh, within Christology that are kind of more introductory by nature. We saw how our understanding of Christ influences other doctrines and other areas of, of practical living, other areas of belief. We examined a number of names and titles of Christ, and those names and titles tell us something about Him. They're not arbitrary. We examined a number of passages in the Old Testament that showed us that there was a long history of anticipation of Messiah. Christ didn't just arrive out of nowhere. God's people anticipated a Redeemer, one who would undo the effects of the fall. They anticipated a King, one who would rule in righteousness and who would come from the line of David. And they anticipated a Mediator, one who would intercede for them. One who would step in between sinful man and holy God and establish a positional peace between those two parties. And now this week we're going to examine the person of Christ. And our whole class tonight is going to be devoted to to this area, the person of Christ. And I know you've heard the phrase, there's kind of our overview, I kind of skipped over that. I know you've heard the phrase, uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man, or truly God and truly man. The divinity of Christ and the simultaneous humanity of Christ is foundational to our Christology. He is the God-man. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So we will begin with the divinity of of Christ tonight. The divinity of Christ or the deity of Christ, we mean the same thing there. We'll see that Scripture declares his divinity and that also Jesus authenticated his divinity as well. That's how we'll break this down. So we'll begin with Scripture declaring his divinity. And we've already seen uh, that this is done through a number of his titles last week. Like I mentioned at the beginning of last week's class, you know, theology often overlaps. We saw that he was called the Son of God. He's called the Word. He's called Lord, Lord of creation, of heaven and earth. And we'll see tonight as well that Christ is declared the Son. I don't want to rehash all the passages we looked at, but I do want to look at this again, um, where Christ is referred to as the Son of God. Because this title specifically reflects the divinity of of Christ. He is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. He possesses an eternal constitutive relationship between himself and the Father. Being the Son is an immutable part of who he is. Like we saw last time, God declares Christ his beloved Son. 
the one in whom he is well pleased in Matthew 2. He openly declares that he loves and delights in his Son. This is also a declaration of his divinity. Son of God is the title that only Christ possesses. Hebrews 1, 4 and 5, having become so much better than the angels to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. To, to who does God refer to this way? My son. Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted him, being Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The title Son of God in Scripture, when applied to Christ, always speaks of what Richard Mayhew calls his essential deity, his absolute equality with God. And the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time understood this title in that way, John 5. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. MacArthur and Mayhew helpfully point out in in their biblical doctrine that in this culture, a dignitary's adult son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with with his father. A son was of the very same essence as his father, heir to all of the father's rights and privileges, and therefore equal in every significant regard. So when Jesus was called the Son of God, it was understood by all as a title of his of his deity, declaring himself equal with God and of the same essence of God. And this is precisely why the Pharisees wanted to charge him with high blasphemy here and put him to death, because no one calls himself the Son of God. Nobody does that. No one declares himself to be of the same essence of God. You're a blasphemer if you say that. No one except the Lord Jesus, of course. And he didn't become the Son at the Incarnation. Christ's Sonship signifies his deity and his equality with the Father. He has always been the pre-existent Son. He is a full member of the Godhead, which has existed from eternity past, in perfect fellowship with, with one another. John 17, 5, And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. So the creator of all things must exist prior to his act of creation. He possessed divine glory before the world existed with the Father, John writes here. We know that Christ was preexistent in his deity in part because he is declared the creator. Creator language is attributed to the Son. Christ is declared the creator. The Son and the creator are one and the same. We looked at the primary passage where where we see this last time, the Gospel of John chapter 1. I'd like you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if you don't mind. John chapter 1. We spent some time there last week. We're going to spend a little bit of time there tonight as well, so keep your finger in, in the Gospel of John if, if, if we turn anywhere else. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. And then continuing down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the only one and only Son from the Father. So Scripture evidently, clearly declares Jesus, who is the Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and this one, the only Son from the Father, who is the Word, the Scripture says, He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Scripture attests to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the very voice of God. He is the Word. Not only as the spokesperson of God, which, which we'll see throughout the class, but namely, he's the creator. Scripture does not generalize the divinity of Christ. It's not painted in some kind of abstract way. It's very specific so as to reflect that he is the creator. John 1 should remind you of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Intentional parallels drawn there by John. We know from Genesis 1 and 2 that God created by speaking. He spoke, and it was. He used his spoken word to bring about his creation. And then John, in chapter 1, more creation details. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the Son of God. And the beginning doesn't relate to merely the onset of creation. The writer of Hebrews contrasts the temporal finite existence of creation with the eternal existence of the Creator, the Son of God, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like a garment and like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So the writer of Hebrews is specifically addressing the Son of God here. He is, a, he is addressed as Lord, and it's tied to the creation act. It often is. This is the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth. He is the Lord. The prophet Micah describes his existence as from old, from ancient days in Micah 5. Isaiah attributes the title Everlasting Father to the Messiah. Christ has always existed and will exist as the Son. At no point did he become God. He was always God, the Creator. Christ is, is not a separate being from God. He is not a creation like you and I. He is God. Elsewhere in Scripture, he's described as the only begotten of the Father. This does not mean he was created. It means he has the same essence of God. He, he bears the same likeness. He is God. In fact, in Scripture, he is called God specifically. The word theos. The general word for God, theos, is used to describe the Son. Look again at John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Father and the Son are inseparable. They are the same God. 
and this is, this is crucial to our Christology, the scripture does not have us understand Christ's deity of being separate from the rest of the Godhead or being lesser in his deity than the Father. Christ is not partly God. He's fully God, truly God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son. He's not a pie graph. You know, one-third of him is God, one-third of him is man, and, and, and so forth. That's never how Scripture presents him. He is truly God all at once, and truly man as well at his incarnation. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact uh, representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So even more details from the, the writer of Hebrews. God has spoken to us through his son. He's the word. He's the spokesperson for God. He speaks for God. But there's more to it. He not only speaks for God, but he is the radiance of his glory and exact representation of his nature. You know, the word radiance in Greek is used only one time in the entire New Testament, right here in Hebrews chapter 1. It carries the meaning of forcefully shining light, like the sun up in the sky radiates its light. The light comes from the sun. The sun generates the light. Christ shines forth the very glory of God. It doesn't bounce off of him like a reflection. The glory is his. It belongs to him, and he shines it out. Christ is also the exact expression of his nature. Again, like the word radiance, this Greek phrase, exact expression, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. In other Greek literature, this phrase was used in context of engraving an image onto wood or imprinting an image onto a coin. Not a a fuzzy image or unclear image. Not like some pieces of, you know, modern art that, that feature patterns and abstractly depicted uh, facial, you know, expressions to allow for or even require subjective interpretation. No, you look at Jesus and you know exactly who he is. The scripture tells us exactly who he is. He is the exact representation of God. F.F. Bruce says that the Son is the perfect imprint of the nature of God. And just like we sang tonight, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven's And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus Christ is the very image of God, evocative of Hebrews 1. He is both the representation and manifestation of God. We see God by looking at at Christ. He's fully God in, in every way. Firstborn of creation, referring to his preeminent position. He is of the highest rank, hence the creator language there. All things were created through him and for him. In Colossians 2.9, 
For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Christ possesses the fullness of divine nature and attributes. Paul's stressing the the reality of, of the incarnation here in Colossians 2, which we'll look at in just a little bit. Jesus was not only fully God, but but fully man as well. You want to know God? Then get to know Jesus. A lot of people claim to believe in God, but that belief is totally disconnected from Christ. The scripture would reflect to us very clearly that that is incorrect belief in God, if it's disconnected from the Son. So the scripture declares Jesus as God. Also, Christ declared himself God, and those declarations are inscripturated. We've already seen that Christ calling himself God's son, calling God his father, this was a declaration of his divinity, and the Jews knew that's what he was doing. Jesus himself progressively reveals his deity and his mission of redemption throughout his earthly ministry. The Gospel of John is a primary place to see this. You're likely familiar with the I am statements of Christ, the I am passages in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John 6. He's the one that sustains us spiritually. He says, I am the light of the world in John 8. He's the one who pierced through the darkness and those who follow him will have the light of life. He says, I am the door in John 10. Jesus is the way in to the fold. He is the only access to becoming part of God's people. He says, I am the good shepherd, also in John 10. He is the real and good leader of God's people, in contrast to the the evil counterfeits. He declares, I am the resurrection and the life, in John 11. Eternal life is found only in Christ. He alone raises the dead. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, he is the exclusive way to God. There are not many ways, there are not many truths, there are not many ways to life. One. Jesus says, I am the true vine. In John 15, life is only found when it's connected to Christ. And in John chapter 8, Jesus declares something rather startling to those around him. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This was an unmistakable claim of deity. Jesus declares himself here to be the Lord of the Old Testament, the preexistent God. You know I am is the, the name God used for himself in the book of Exodus to reflect this very thing to, to the Israelites in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and, they say to, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus links himself to God in John chapter 8. He explicitly declares himself the Lord of the Old Testament. Back in John 8, they were outraged at this, outraged that he would claim this kind of deity. They picked up stones to kill him. They thought he was a blasphemer. And there are only two options. Jesus is who he said he was, or he was not. There is no third option. 
But Scripture and Jesus himself not only declared his divinity, but he himself authenticated that divinity. Christ authenticated his divinity. Jesus not only said that he is God, but he proved it. He proved it in in many ways. Namely, he put his divine attributes as creator on display. He put on display those attributes that are incommunicable, attributes that God does not share with his image bearers. So how did Jesus authenticate himself as God? Well, in addition to the numerous miracles and healings that accompanied his teaching, he exercised his divine attributes in a number of specific ways throughout his his earthly ministry. First, Jesus demonstrated omnipotence. Remember, omnipotence means all-powerful. This is incommunicable. We are not all-powerful. The Creator does not share this with us. Christ had control over creation. Creation obeyed his commands. An example is when Christ calmed the storm in Matthew chapter 8. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This wasn't just an act of power. This was creation power. He rebuked the winds, implying he used his words to command them. Christ, with only his word, reverses what is going on naturally in the storm. Only the creator has the authority to command creation like that. Only the creator can reverse the natural processes that he instituted at creation. Only God has this type of omnipotence. Christ demonstrated that. Christ also demonstrated omniscience. Omniscience meaning all-knowing. All-knowing. And this, of course, is not an attribute that God shares with us, although some like to think they're all-knowing. His knowledge has no bounds. It has no limits. John 1, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Christ knew something that couldn't have possibly been known apart from his omniscience. I mean, only God could have known Nathanael's heart. There's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Only God could have known that he was sitting under a fig tree before Philip called him. And so in response, Nathanael declares him the Son of God, the King of Israel. He believed in in, in who he was. Only God possesses this kind of omniscience. And Jesus demonstrated that. One more. Christ demonstrated divine sovereignty. Jesus gave evidence that he possessed the the very sovereignty of, of God. He was in control over all things. In Mark 2... Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic man, you'll remember, and then to authenticate it, he heals the man of his paralysis. Remember that story? 
Only God has the sovereign authority to forgive sins and to prove that he healed the man physically. But most evidently, I think the, the sovereignty of, of Christ is demonstrated in the resurrection. Luke 24, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two, two men stood by them in, da- in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead, asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. God commanded death to release its grip upon Christ, and it was so. Only God is sovereign over death. And this is why it was the Son of God who had to atone for the sins of his people on the cross. Only God has the authority to break the chains of of sin and conquer death itself. I mean, the, the resurrection ultimately authenticates that Jesus is the Son of God. I've heard some say that if the resurrection didn't happen, then none of this matters. If there was no resurrection, then there would be no point to any of this. Why are we here? But there was a resurrection, wasn't there? The Son of God lives, and He is at the right hand of the Father, even now interceding for His people. Christ demonstrated His full deity. Christ is fully God, and has always been fully God. And there was a point in which he took upon himself human nature. He took upon himself humanity. I know we've been kind of jumping to and fro out of John 1, but take a glance one more time at verse 14 of John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father. So the Word also became flesh. The preexistent Son took on human nature. This is what John means when he says the Word became flesh. And so this is a good place to, to transition into talking about the humanity of Christ. First off with the incarnation of Christ. There's some theologians that have the incarnation kind of governing uh, the entire person of Christ, and I understand why, why they do that. I've chosen to place the incarnation here because, uh, in, in a major sense, his divinity does transcend the, the incarnation. We, we've seen already that he didn't become God when he took on human flesh. He was preexistent before that as the Son. And we've said the word incarnation several times Here's what we mean by the incarnation, God taking upon himself human nature. I know that's a word we we kind of throw around and make sure everybody understands that. That's the incarnation. The word became flesh, like we see in John 1. And the incarnation of Christ is essential to our Christology. When discussing the humanity of Christ, specifically the incarnation, I think it's actually the best place to begin is is a place in the Old Testament, a messianic prophecy. We saw last time a a number of Old Testament prophecies that predicted the coming Messiah. God's people had a long history of anticipation of Christ. I want us to look at another one tonight as we begin the humanity of Christ in Isaiah 9. And we'll just hone in on verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. 
and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a text that we read every Christmas, but it's not a Christmas text. You don't have to read it just at, at Christmas time. This is actually a pretty lengthy prophecy that began way back in Isaiah 7, verse 14. The prophecy elaborating on Emmanuel, the one who will be born of a virgin, the one whose name means God with us. Isaiah here expounds on that. This Emmanuel will be the son of David with rights to the Davidic throne. He'll rule the nations. He'll possess supernatural wisdom. He'll be a father to his people eternally. And the government of Emmanuel will perpetuate peace among the nations. Isaiah says, this child is coming to you. And in Luke 2, Luke tells us the child has arrived. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in snuggly cloth and laid him in a manger. So the son was born into human flesh as a human baby. The word became flesh. He was born in the same way as all of mankind. The scripture is remarkably clear on this. Even unbelievers know that Jesus was a real human being, human man who was born, even pagans and secularists. Those that dispute this are not being intellectually honest. But there's more to it. Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. In Christ's incarnation, he voluntarily yielded the exercise of certain divine attributes according to the will of the Father. We call this the kenosis, drawing from the Greek verb here for emptied himself, kenao, the emptying, you could call it. This was a voluntary act undertaken by the Son where he became like a bondservant, a slave, a doulos. He stooped from God to humanity, emptied himself. But we should not understand this as Christ giving up his deity or even really surrendering divine attributes like omniscience. It's by definition impossible for the pre-existent son to stop being the pre-existent son. MacArthur and Mayhew break this down in a really helpful way. They say, He emptied himself not by pouring out portions of his deity, but by adding to himself full and true humanity. He was emptying himself by addition, not by subtraction. The taking on of humanity was part of the emptying, truly condescending to to him. He voluntarily yielded the use of certain divine attributes by taking on full humanity. He surrendered himself to the life of a man, one who was like a slave in comparison to, to God, truly condescending himself to us. Some call this the humiliation of Christ. We know he didn't drop his divine attributes completely because he used them on occasion, typically as verification of what he was teaching and declaring about himself, as we've already seen. Even though Jesus was was born like a man, he retained his complete divinity. And even his, his birth did not come about 
in human terms. Jesus, although truly man, is of course different from us. And the virgin birth is one of those ways that Christ is set apart from the rest of humanity while still being a member of of humanity. Christ did not have a human father. He was conceived through a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.18 The birth of Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that before Joseph and Mary got married and attempted to have a child, she was already pregnant with Christ by the Holy Spirit. This conception of, of Jesus was a work of God, an exclusive work of God. And this was told to both Joseph and Mary. This wasn't something they just had to deduce like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. No, God sent a messenger to tell them so it was clear that no sin was committed. A couple of verses later in in Matthew 1, the angel appears to Joseph and tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. He's told that she hasn't sinned. This, This pregnancy was a complete work of God. Scripture says that Joseph did as the angel said. He took Mary as his wife. Joseph trusted God. Sometimes we forget about Joseph in the story of of Christ's birth. That man trusted God in this. God also informed Mary of this, too. We see that account in Luke chapter 1 here. The angel Gabriel appears to her and tells her she would bear a son. Mary asks the angel, how can this be? I've not known a husband. And here's what Gabriel tells tells Mary in Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Isaiah 7.14 may have been in her mind. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And she will call His name Emmanuel, God with us. He will be called the Son of God. Virgin birth was to be expected, according to Isaiah's prophecy. The Holy One, the preexistent Son, is going to take upon Himself human nature and be born by this young virgin woman, Mary. Jesus did not have a human father. It was a complete and exclusive work of God. Scripture is fairly straightforward on this. So I think now is, is a good time to ask the question, is the virgin birth a necessary doctrine? Is it a big deal if you believe in the virgin birth or not? I don't know about you, but I don't really recall the virgin birth of Christ being included in every gospel presentation that I heard as an unbeliever, at least the presentations I was paying attention to. I mean, along with other doctrines like the ascension of Christ. I don't remember these being presented to me in a gospel presentation. I mean, when you are sharing your faith with someone in your circle of influence, at work, at school, with your kids at home, I'm going to venture to guess that the virgin birth isn't included every single time you share your faith. I know it's not when when I share my faith. Usually we highlight the work of Christ when we're sharing the gospel. We proclaim his excellencies as Peter instructs us to in 1 Peter 2. 
we tell people about the great work that he has done for us. And we are right to do that and have a focus on that as it's what the scripture tells us to do. That being said, I would submit to you that yes, the virgin birth is a necessary doctrine. Not only is it a necessary belief because it's what the Bible tells us, but I would submit to you that it's an imperative of the Christian faith. There are a number of reasons, but I've given you two just highlighted there in your handout. The first one, it it shows us that salvation comes only from God. Genesis 3.16, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head. God will bring about the destruction of the serpent by his own power. I will put hostility between you and the woman, God says. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, not the man, will destroy the power of the serpent. The virgin birth is an unmistakable reminder that salvation comes only through God. It comes about by the direct work of God. Man is not redeemed through any human effort at all. God himself rectifies all of the homardiological issues that Nathan taught for those three weeks in part one of this class. The virgin birth is an illustration to us that salvation comes exclusively from God. It also makes the perfect holiness of Christ possible. There is a concrete theological explanation for how and why Christ was sinless. And it's the virgin birth. The virgin birth removes any kind of mysticism from the holiness of Christ. Scripture shows us that man has inherited guilt and has a sin nature passed on to him. All the way back from our first father, Adam. It's passed on to all humans. No member of the human race is exempt from inherited guilt and total depravity except for one man, Jesus Christ. He was able in a concrete way to remain sinless in order that he might be our perfect example our perfect sympathizer, our perfect representative, and our perfect sacrifice. These were the reasons for the word becoming flesh, which we'll examine in a minute. Sin nature, guilt, depravity, a heart default to sin. We inherit all of that from Adam. Jesus was the only man in all of human history who did not inherit that. Wayne Grudem says the fact that Jesus did not have a human father means that the line of descent from Adam was partially interrupted in the conception and birth of Jesus because he was the seed of the woman. The conception of Christ didn't come about through human means. It was a work of God. God intervened in the natural process that he set up at creation. And he did that for a distinct purpose. Jesus was able to be perfectly holy because he is the son of God, not a son of Adam. So the virgin birth is imperative to our faith. Without the virgin birth, we have a theological avalanche in a bad way. If you want more on that, I would encourage you to to look up um, Don Whitney's Q&A on this. I I think he's doing our TES um, Super Seminar at the end of the month uh, on Southern Seminary's YouTube page. He does Q&A stuff with different questions. Uh, He answered this question in a lot longer, more detailed than I'm able to do tonight. So if you want more on that, I would encourage you to to look into that, but is the virgin birth necessary? I would submit to you, yes. Yes, it is. 
Let's now look at uh, some evidences of Christ's humanity. There are a number of evidences laid out in Scripture that attest to Christ's true humanity. He's fully God and fully and truly man. First, he had a human body. This is obvious, I think, but it's worth mentioning because the Scripture makes great mention of it. When he arrived at the Incarnation, he didn't have a heavenly body. He wasn't some kind of wisp or ghost or specter that assumed the form of a man. He had a human body, physically, with all of its innate weaknesses and limitations. John 4, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. He was tired after a long journey. He needed to sit down and rest. His legs were probably sore from walking. His feet probably hurt. He may have been out of breath. He was physically exhausted and needed to rest. Matthew 4, 2. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. If you fast for that long, you'd be hungry too. He was likely physically weakened from not eating regularly. And it's interesting to note about this account that Satan tried to prey upon the weaknesses of Christ's humanity here. That's when temptation is the most dangerous, when we're in a state of weakness. The devil attempted to exploit the human weaknesses of Christ to get him to sin. And we know from those accounts that Christ resisted for us, representative obedience. Also Luke 23 And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. So Christ physically died. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man to die once. And Christ shared in that appointment. He shared in physical death as all humanity does. But the wonderful reality for us is that he didn't stay dead. Because he was resurrected. We shall be as well. So from these three passages, we see that Jesus got tired and had to rest. He got hungry and he physically died. There are are many more we could look at. All of these things we experience. These are all the weaknesses and limitations that we have. Weaknesses and limitations that Christ shared in. He also had a human mind. He had a human body and he had a human mind. Luke chapter 2, 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. He grew up physically in stature, but he also grew in his wisdom, Luke says. As Jesus grew up, he learned just as children do. He was subject to the normal growth processes for human beings, not just physically, but intellectually as well. Those of you with, with children know there, there comes a point when your little baby goes from blibber-blabbering to saying actual words. And they use those words mostly in a correct way. And then they start to string three or four of them together to make a sentence, and then we all start weeping because the little ones are growing up, right? The little ones learn to speak as they grow and their mind grows. The same was true for Jesus. He increased in his wisdom. He was subject to that growing development experience, too. He had a human mind. He also had human emotions. Jesus felt human feelings. He experienced all of the emotions any man would. Jesus felt the same things you feel. Here are some examples. 
John 13, 21, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. Troubled here is a really, really strong word. It, it conveys a sense of horror or extreme anguish or agitation. Christ is, is contemplating what's going to befall him. His betrayal and the incoming wrath of the Father being poured out on him for the sins of the world, dwelling on this, caused him to feel this revulsion. In Luke 22, when Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, the text tells us that his sweat became drops of blood. That's a legitimate and dangerous physiological response to extreme stress and anguish. This happens as he's praying, and an angel comes from heaven to minister her Uh, to him and and to to strengthen him in this moment, he felt quite deeply and severely. Matthew 8, verse 10, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Some translations say Christ marveled. This was a sense of astonishment and joy. So the Lord experienced the negative emotions, but he also experienced the positive ones too like joy. In John 11, maybe the most obvious example, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. This is the, the death of his friend Lazarus. This is the famous passage where Christ declares himself the resurrection and the life. He approaches this weeping crowd after the death of his friend Lazarus. There was professional mourning going on, so it would have been quite a sobering spectacle. Christ deeply moved. doesn't mean that he was merely touched by sympathy watching this mourning. Deeply moved is also used to convey an emotional indignation. He was indignant at what he was witnessing. And then he wept. This conveys a bursting into tears, but in kind of a silent way. This wasn't a loud, wailing outburst like the crowd was was doing. And there's some discussion about what exactly Christ is emotionally indignant toward and what exactly he's weeping over, but one thing is certain from all of those discussions. He is most definitely indignant over what sin has caused, namely death. He weeps over what his image bearers are experiencing because of sin. And you know the story. Christ undoes death, raises Lazarus. So just from these three passages, Scripture tells us that Christ felt very deeply. He had human emotions. Last, he was seen by human, by those around him. The people around him saw him sometimes only as a man. They kind of took it too far. Matthew 13, he went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and say, how did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary and his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. They saw him as a man. They knew he was a man. The people who knew Jesus best, his friends and neighbors in his hometown, couldn't believe he was teaching and healing in the way he was. He was just an ordinary carpenter's son. That's just Jesus, Joseph's boy. And sadly, many of them didn't believe in him. 
until after the resurrection. They were insulted by him and rejected him. They saw him only as a man. They would only see his humanity. They would not see him as the son of God, even though, they, even though he authenticated it in front of their eyes. They took this too far. But the scripture clearly presents to us that Jesus is fully man. The people around him saw this. So now we'll turn uh, to the reasons for Christ's humanity. We'll spend the rest of our time here. The reasons for Christ's humanity. These are essentially implications of the humanity of Christ, and we're going to kind of quickly move through these. Why did God take upon himself human nature? Is there a reason that the word had to become flesh? Why did he condescend himself in this way? Couldn't he have just stayed God and did what he did? Why did he have to become man? Well, there are reasons. The first is to be our perfect example. 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. I mean, the Bible tells us over and over again to be like Christ, pursue him, walk as he walked, be like him. We have a perfect example as we live life on the earth because he lived life on the earth. We move toward the goal for which God saved us, to be more like him for his glory. He's our example. Peter says that in suffering, we have a perfect example in Christ. In the book of 1 Peter, if you face a hostile society that hates your faith and hates you, consider Christ and what he faced. Look to him who endured hostility. You have a perfect example. Remember Philippians 3.10 from last time? Paul says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will reach the resurrection from among the dead. He was an example to us even in the resurrection. Jesus is fully man and died the death of a man, but he didn't stay dead. He is fully God and overcame death in his resurrection. The resurrection is a prime example of something that we will experience too, through him. Jesus being fully man is meant to be our perfect example to follow. What's another reason? Well, to be our perfect sympathizer. To be our perfect sympathizer. It is a biblical reality that we have a sympathetic Savior. Christ is not a distant deity that barely cares or knows anything about those he saves. He took upon himself human nature in part so that he could sympathize with those that he came for, with his image bearers. He knows us. Hebrews 4, 15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. He felt the full force of temptation from the devil himself, but never succumbed 
unlike us who sin even at the slightest temptation. He knows what it's like to be presented with the allure of sin at the moment of your greatest weakness. And the scripture says this is why he can come to our aid so effectively. The Son of God knows what it's like also to feel what you feel. And let's, let's be sure not to trivialize that. I know when we kind of talk about our feelings and kind of trivialize that, let's not trivialize this. When you are legitimately faced with something catastrophic in your life, life-altering, and you are distressed about it, and you feel deep anguish and horror at it, he knows that. When someone you love dies, and that person loved you and loved God, and you're heartbroken and deeply sorrowful, he knows When someone betrays you and you're hurt by that and you're angry at what their sin is causing others, he knows. So you can run to him as your perfect example. So he came to be our perfect sympathizer. Reasons for his humanity also to be our perfect representative. Christ has engaged in representative obedience on our behalf. We've seen already in part one of this class about Adam being our first representative and how he failed. Jesus is called the second Adam and accomplished the obedience in which Adam failed. This is what Romans 5 is all about. And uh, Pastor Brian just finished teaching through that, so we won't rehash those passages. But the Son took upon himself human nature in order to be our perfect representative and obey in our place. Adam's disobedience caused all of mankind to plummet into sin and brokenness. And Jesus' obedience restores that which was broken in Adam. He's also our representative mediator. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. Christ Jesus himself, human. Because we are alienated from God, we need someone to come between us and God and restore positional peace. We need a mediator who can represent us to God and represent God to us. In order to do this, Christ became fully man while at the same time being fully God. He alone restores peace between God and sinners. He is our perfect representative. And lastly, to be our perfect substitute. To be our perfect substitute. Hebrews 2, 16. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If Jesus was not fully man, truly man, then he could not have been the atoning sacrifice that we so desperately needed. He could not have died in our place and took the punishment that was so due to us. If he was not truly man and sinless, he wouldn't have been able to propitiate God's wrath. His atonement wouldn't have been considered satisfactory. Christ had to be man. 
to adequately atone for our sins. He had to become like us in every way so he could be that acceptable substitute to satisfy God's requirement for sin. He couldn't have been a substitute for you if, if he was not like you, fully man. And this carries implications into the atonement, which we'll examine next time. So this is the person of Christ. In your handout there, you'll see a few common errors uh, regarding the person of Christ. Uh, we, won't, we won't go through that because we are, we are out of time, but I wanted to give you that just as a resource. There are common errors, some of them quite ancient, that are still floating around today. Errors you may have encountered yourself, but you may not have known it was called modalism <laughs> or Arianism. Uh, so you can have that just as a resource to, to guard yourself. Uh, next time, we are going to examine the atonement, the work of Christ. And boy, is that going to be fun. Uh, we're going to spend a couple of Sunday nights on the atonement. So hopefully to see you back back then. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the church. Thank you for your faithfulness in revealing yourself to us. Thank you for becoming our perfect example so that we might follow you and walk as you walked. Help us, Lord, to do that this week. In Christ's name, amen.